Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 180, recorded for the week of August 31st, 2022. Azure Data Explorer says all your S3 data are belong to us. Good evening, Peter and Jonathan. Hey, Justin. Hello. And uh, Ryan will join us here momentarily. He's uh, coming late out of a couple things, but uh, he'll be joining us mid-flight here. But we, uh, we have a bit of a time crunch on the recording. So we'll get started, and uh, he can join us mid-flight and uh, have great additions to us. But uh, yeah, been a busy week here. Now that September is finally upon us, uh, we are definitely officially on the countdown to reInvent, guys. Oh, <laughs> forgot about reInvent. It's coming. It's coming around the corner. Well, the, uh, Google Cloud Next is also coming up, but it's uh, that one's virtual, so that one's not so bad. But uh, yeah, reinvent around the corner. Is anyone going to do the hackathon again? I, maybe. I don't know. I haven't thought about it. Are you going to go to reinvent this year? I don't plan to, but I could do yeah. it remotely, can't you? I think you can be part of a hackathon group remote. I don't see why not. Anyways, uh, well, you know what I know they're not going to be announcing at reinvent is uh, some new data centers in Ireland. Yeah, um, I think we we previously had talked about that there was some power challenges, and so an official uh, news article has been posted uh, about proposed new data centers for both Amazon and Microsoft in Ireland have been blocked amid concerns of power shortages and supplies. Amazon had planned to invest apparently two billion dollars in new data center construction. However, a moratorium by AirGrid, the state-owned electricity system operator, means the plan is on hold and impacts one AWS site and two Microsoft sites. Uh, these concerns are, of course, increased by the Ukraine-Russian conflict and threats to energy in the EU in general. However, the moratorium by AirGrid did go into effect prior to the start of the conflict. Uh, Amazon is apparently looking at alternative investment areas, including expanding their investment in Frankfurt uh, and some of the other regional locations. Uh, but building new data centers in Europe in general and across the rest of the world is becoming a problem due to limited power resources and increased climate uh, change problems. Yeah, I think anywhere in Europe right now is going to be in the same situation power-wise. Uh, if a data center uses many megawatts of uh, of power, that just is not, not cost-effective. I think I talked to my uh, mom the other day, and because of the, the crunch on natural gas, because of the, the Ukraine war, I think I think like the average bill is going to go up by like three and a half thousand dollars a year for for natural gas for the average home. So I mean, scale that up to the amount of uh, energy that a data center needs to run. It's it's almost cost prohibitive to to even start building something there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you're talking about multiple megawatts of capacity required for one building, it's a ton of infrastructure and ton of power capacity that needs to be delivered. Uh, and if you're already strapped because of you know air conditioning demands and other challenges, it's uh, it's hard to deliver guaranteed power to a data center. Yeah, not to mention, I mean, that cost is going to have to get directly passed to the users of that data center anyway. So it's not going to be your favorite location to launch new instances. Yeah, traditionally, I don't really see a big difference in pricing between Europe and the U.S. We see more of those issues uh, going into like Asia, Pac Pacific, uh, in Australia, and those things as of bandwidth problems. And so, bandwidth has really been the bigger driver of increased costs for what I've seen in the past. But you know, with some marginal changes in power costs, to you know, we're talking about pennies per instance hour here or there for power. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it changes if supply continues to become a problem. You'll assume rates will go up, and eventually that becomes a problem for all the cloud providers. Yeah, no. I think I feel like SimCity 2000 lied to me. By now, we should have had you know satellites in space collecting solar power and beaming oh microwave energy down to us. Fusion reactors, <laughs> all yeah. kinds of things. Yeah, uh, those fusion reactors are still 25 years away, as they were no! 30 years ago. 
Come on. <laughs> Just get it over with. Jeez, we're so close. Now they're talking about, you know, very small uh, molten salt based nuclear reactors, you know, individual ones for certain high consuming power operations. So I suspect that might be the, the future of data center power in some ways will be you know, buried. I want yeah. that in my watch. I want that powering my watch. It might be pretty warm. I think the temperature is... Uh... Teeny, no, teeny. It would be teeny tiny. <laughs> We've got a fusion generator. It's the sun. Just build solar panels. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Collect it already. Collect the one that's already running. Yeah. All right. Well, we have some stunning stories here from AWS this week. And the first one is if you love a good chart, like all executives like Peter and I do, good chart can now be embedded fully from QuickSight. And I, I sort of thought QuickSight always did this, so this was a bit of a surprise to me. But apparently, you can now uh, embed fine-grained visual uh, uh, visualizations from QuickSight directly into your application or web pages. This feature also enables you to provide rich insights to your end users when they need them the most without server or software setups. So now you get embedded reports in your apps. Nice. That's cool. I don't know how... It's kind of weird that it's from the QuickSight product, though. But whatever. Get it from somewhere. Why is it weird that it's from the QuickSight product? Because you you would generate the report or the dashboard of the data from your data set using QuickSight, yes. and then you'd have this data the object that you want to then put into your app or your web page so people could see the data. It doesn't seem that far-fetched to me. It doesn't seem that far-fetched the way you describe it. <laughs> What's your okay. going to price it out? Is it, is it like price per hit on the, on the graph or, or what? I mean, maybe, maybe it'd be better for people to render those things and drop them into S3 periodically as static assets instead of making them real-time. Just API calls? Yeah. That's pretty cool, though. Yeah, it is pretty neat. Uh, I was trying to see if I see pricing here real quick, but I, it's not coming to me quickly. So I don't know. But yeah, it, you'd assume that there's going to be some cost, or maybe they're maybe they're doing magic of CloudFront in the background. They're just putting it in S3 for you and making it available. Well, a feature that I think is super cool, uh, AWS is announcing the new AWS support app for Slack, which enables you to directly manage your technical billing and account support cases increase your service quotas in Slack, and initiate a live chat with your AWS support engineer all directly from Slack. Available to all customers with business, enterprise, on-ramp, or enterprise support at no additional charge. And you connect the support portal to the Slack workspace, and then you can add Slack channels by choosing Add Channel. You can add up to 20 channels for a single AWS account, and a single Slack channel can have up to 100 AWS accounts in it. Uh, Once all this is done, it's easy to create a support case as simple as slash AWS support, create case or increase quota, uh, and you can create a support case to specify the subject, description, issue type, service category, severity, and contact method, either email and or Slack. And those support people get dumped right into your active chat conversation uh, to talk about all whatever your potential issue is. Uh, this is the millennial product of millennial products. I love everything about this because no talking to humans. Yeah, this is my favorite announcement of the week and maybe of the year because we do all of our support with our customers in usually Slack channels, sometimes Teams, but usually Slack channels. So. This is going to be really valuable when we're collaborating with a customer to be able to then just basically pull AWS in when we're working on something on AWS. I kind of wish I'd open source this actually instead of leaving it as a product in the, in the uh, Slack sort of app marketplace because I can think of all kinds of extensions I'd like to build on top of what what they're going to build, either business specific things or uh, you know stop people from opening Sevon tickets without some kind of approval process would, would be a bit of a pain. But just think how much easier it's going to be now. Now we've already got the integration in Slack for managing resources in the account. Now you can open a ticket and the, and the bot can look at the account and pick the resource IDs out for you and 
pre-populate all those things into the ticket, unlike the um, the web console, which makes it a little more difficult. Yeah, that's actually a good point. I didn't think about the integrations that you could do. Uh, you know, maybe someone who's part of the AWS Community Builders team could, uh, you know, request this to be open sourced. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, in a feature that I hope does not become standard for all new feature announcements, AWS Security Hub is now publishing announcements through Amazon SNS, helping you to stay up to date with the latest feature releases. Anyone can submit to this via the console or the CLI, and you can get announcements like general notifications, upcoming standards and controls, new AWS regions supported, new standard and controls, retired standard controls, updates to the AWS security finding format, new integrations, new features, and changes to existing features, all delivered right to your mailbox. Uh, I was sort of thinking, hmm, it's nice to go right to Slack, but uh, I forget that SNS doesn't <laughs> have a native plug into Slack, so I have to write a Lambda function first. So maybe in the future I can get that. That's uh, fine. <laughs> but uh, yeah, overall, it's nice to see them kind of get a little bit more proactive in some of these things that are uh, more real-time and more necessary for people to be able to subscribe to them. I think it is a good option. SNS does give you a lot of power, despite having to write your own custom Lambda function to Slack. Mm, I don't know. I mean, what's what's wrong with a mailing list? Subscribing to a mailing list or, or an RSS feed or something? It's it's not like you're going to do sort of some kind of compute on the data that you receive. I suppose you could filter it based on particular things through SNS, but I, I don't see the value of SNS rather than just a mailing list, really. Yeah, I mean, Google Reader was so successful that you know it got killed. So RSS clearly is not as popular as I like it to be because I I live and die by RSS. Um, but uh, you know, as long as they continue to post on the website on the RSS feed, I'll be perfectly fine with them uh, having this. So I did subscribe to it because I was curious what it's going to tell me. And uh, I can tell you, the first one I got is a, a lovely uh, bit of JSON blob object. <laughs> it's actually a little bit difficult to parse. So uh, it's not human readable. So I don't know exactly you know what the purpose of this is going to be. But um, you know, I'm curious. Keep an eye on it. Maybe it was just a, a fluke. Maybe steps. Yeah, baby steps. Maybe it's maybe it's a lead up to something else cool yeah. that's coming at reInvent. That's kind of what I hope. But uh, they do tend to release these prerequisite items, don't they? Before the yeah. uh, yes, they do. Yeah. Uh, Amazon RDS for SQL Server now supports email subscriptions for SQL Server Reporting Services, or SSRS as it's known. Uh, this is a nice enhancement for those of you who just wanted to send a simple report and find out that you had to deploy your own SQL Server on top of EC2 just to do simple email sending, <laughs> which is a pretty common way you might want to deliver a report. So. Thanks, Mike. Uh, thanks, AWS. It you know, took you forever to leave this feature. Hey, hey. <laughs> you're here. Hey, it's, it's here now. Let's just be happy it's here now. Uh, this next one uh, is one of those uh, slight annoyances I have in uh, Cloudform or in Terraform with how it handles uh, CloudFront. And that is the uh, origin access control uh, methodology that they use for uh, accessing your CloudFront repo to S3. Uh, and so in cloud, in, in Terraform in particular, that is a dynamically dictated uh, identifier. So it changes like almost every Terraform apply, apply that I do right now. And uh, I think I can get around this, but I just haven't debugged it enough. But uh, now they're going to give you a new origin access control, which is a new feature that enables CloudFront customers to easily secure their S3 origins by permitting only designated CloudFront distributions to access their S3 bucket. Uh, before this, you were limited to just that origin access identity I mentioned uh, to restrict access to S3 origins in CloudFront. And origin access control improves upon origin accidentally by strengthening security and deepening future feature integrations. Yeah, totally agree. This is a this is a, a great move in the right direction. I always thought the origin access identity was was kind of a little backwards, and it was always a chore to use because you had to log in with a root account to generate it, mm -hmm. which which of course breaks a whole bunch of uh, good patterns. So being um, being able to define this entirely from the account containing the S three bucket is is excellent. Yeah, well, and I, and I think it's. 
you know, that whole origin access and entity was kind of a weird construct to people too, where the, now I can just declare like, this is the, this is the CloudFront distribution. I want to have access to my S3 through this method. I think it's a much cleaner implementation. So I, I do applaud this one. Uh, and another area that CloudFront, uh, the account takeover prevention now supports CloudFront as well. Uh, takeover prevention protects your app login page against credential stuffing attacks, brute force attempts, and other anomalous login activities, uh, now enabling you to protect those uh, login pages even more that are hosted in CloudFront, not just your AWS WAF. Yeah, and it's better than recapture. <laughs> I mean, most of the recapture nowadays is silent. I, and then occasionally you'll get popped by one that's on V2 still, and you have to identify all the taxis on the photos, and I get annoyed. Just upgrade to uh, you know capture the V three, <laughs> please. Yeah, identify the pedestrians at risk of being run over by that autonomous vehicle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. EKS Anywhere curated packages are now officially generally available. These software packages extend the core functionalities of Kubernetes, and you can now install the Harbor packages as local container registry, the emissary uh, ingress package as ingress controller, and the Battle LB package as a service type load balancer. All of these are open source, uh, so you can modify them to your heart's content, and they all go through Amazon's rigorous security scanning and signing processes to ensure that you get the only the best curated packages for your EKS Anywhere deployment. Yeah, I'm picturing a day when everything we need is in that uh, system, and we don't have to know anything about anything. Just launch it all. I like where there's a day where it's just it's just built into the core of Kubernetes, and I don't have to worry about it at all. It just knows based on where it's at if it's. AWS or it's Google or it's Azure or what yeah. it needs and it just does it magically without me having to add additional packs at all. It just looks at my app and figures out which ones I need and then it pre-installs them. Wow, so that's like cloudless computing. <laughs> <laughs> the multi-cloud dream realized. <laughs> cloudless. It's the no-code version of, uh, of EKS. There you go, no-code version of EKS. Well, this work was VMworld, uh, and I'm sure we'll cover a little bit more next week as it's only halfway through the week uh, when we had news cut off. But uh, AWS and VMware were first up announcing VMware Cloud on AWS integration with Amazon FSx for NetApp ONTAP. Uh, this has uh, been in beta for about six months now. Uh, previously to this, you had to only be able to use vSAN, uh, where they could scale data store capacity with the compute. So basically, they take your EC2 instance. They'd suck up all the compute off that EC2 instance and dump it into the vSAN pool and stripe your data across that vSAN. Problem with that approach, of course, is that when you need to scale up your storage, but not your compute, you still have to scale up both, uh, causing you to spend more money and potentially provisioning more data than you needed. This new capability can help you lower those costs by requiring you to provision more compute than needed for your work, or by only provisioning exactly what you need in the storage tier easily and quickly, uh, leveraging VMware, or sorry, NetApp and FSx technology. And if you want to hear more about ONTAP, do check out our Anthony Lai interview on TCP Talks, a fantastic episode where we talk a lot about the ONTAP and the, VM, the NetApp evolution uh, they've been going through over the last several years as they move to be cloud native to check that out. Wow. I just, all I can tell you is that for my customers, there is a high correlation between people using VMware Cloud on AWS and people using NetApp ONTAP on AWS. Yes, so, they're a very common pairing go. that you'll find. <laughs> If you want to be able to do VMs with NFS, NetApp is your choice. There are a couple others too, but that's a pretty common one. Uh, and I have a new uh, region for myself, the Me Central One region. It's all about me, 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 me. Uh, but actually, this is the new Middle Eastern region now open in the United Arab Emirates. This is the second region in the Middle East uh, following the Amazon Bahrain region. 
The new region has three AZs and are in distinct geographic locations of the UAE with enough distance to reduce the risk of a single event affecting the availability of the region, but near enough for business continuity for applications that are morally high, highly available, fault tolerant, and more scalable than would be possible for a single data center. And if for those of you who are familiar with UAE, you just all questioned yourselves because you're like, isn't it a very tiny, tiny country? And the answer is yes. It is a very tiny, tiny country. So these data centers must be on like all of the edges <laughs> surrounding the entire uh, country because... Uh, it's not a very big place. So, uh, you know, you do get that uh, high availability, but it's definitely not DR. Uh, and there's a quote here from uh, His Excellency, Excellency uh, Muhammad Ali Al-Sharafa, chairman of the Abu Dhabi Department of Econ- Economic Development. The opening of the AWS Middle East region is a significant milestone for Abu Dhabi and the UAE as a whole, reflecting our efforts to generate opportunities for all. It strengthens Abu Dhabi's commitment to positioning itself as a leading digital economy by leveraging cutting-edge technology to support business growth. The enhanced cloud capabilities enabled by AWS are expected to generate significant advantages and efficiencies that can propel businesses to success and realize major economic benefits for the country. And I bet there's a lot of ML to find oil in that data center. (laughs) Yeah. And Ryan, you joined us. Welcome, Ryan. Yeah, I snuck in. It's the very tail tail end of AWS. Yeah, there you go. See. Living the dream, you know. Living the dream. dream. Fighting fires operationally. Doing podcasts, you know, it's like cloud celebrity. It's cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just in time podcasting. Yes. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiatives stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution. Foghorn Consulting. Falcon Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Falcon certified AWS, GCP, and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOp solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPods sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul, and they bring their own juice. All right, we'll go on to GCP. Uh, managed AD from Google now supports on-demand backups, schema extension support, and, need, uh, and needs no hardware management or patching for that AD. Uh, managed AD already offered you a scheduled backup, which are taken automatically every 12 hours. However, now with the on-demand backup and restore, customers will have the ability to create checkpoints at any point in time and restore back to that state when needed. The new on-demand backup and restore functionality is generally available in addition to the scheduled backups. Functionality can provide flexibility for customers to initiate backup and recovery on their need. And the need that you might have is that you want to do schema extensions, which are now supported. Uh, This is adding specific attributes and metadata to your uh, Active Directory profile. And one example they use, which is really interesting, is the Microsoft Local Administrator Password Solution, or LAPS, which is a tool that randomizes the local administrator password and stores it in the AD, and it will also change that password on a periodic schedule. But of course, to use LAPS, you need to be able to extend the AD. And if you cannot do that before, you could not use this feature. And so now have the ability to uh, modify your schema through the add, modify, mod RDN, and mod DDN capabilities. You can now extend the schema to take advantage of tools like LAPS. I can't wait. I actually didn't know about LAPS, so I was excited about that because I learned something today. I was like, that's a cool tool. This is a neat yeah, idea. It is kind of cool. It's a lot easier to say than Kerberos. <laughs> is that how you pronounce that? 
Yeah. That was Kerberos. But, uh, yeah. See, that's what I'm talking about. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. I guess they added the uh, the on-demand backup so that when you made mistakes with the schema, you could roll it back. <laughs> Which you will do if you've never modified the schema of AD before. Yeah. You will mess it up the first time because it is, it is a very uh, specialized skill, <laughs> I would yeah. say. But it is useful to be able to extend the schema. I think more and more um, with OAuth, mm-hmm. uh, you, you want to include data about your about members of the directory in the claims, mm-hmm. and so being able to add the custom data to the directory so you can build build you know build apps on top of that is it's really cool. Yeah, well, I mean, but, you can do all kinds of things too. You can add you know profile photos through schema modifications. You can and all these things. So when you're modifying AD, you know, you can put all this identifying data in for security. You can tie in security badges to it. Hell, you could even do pronouns if that's something you want to track on your AD. Uh, that's all available to you through schema modification. It's not available out of the box. So, uh, Google is delighted to announce its unique first-to-market detection capability with virtual machine threat detection in the Security Command Center. Uh, they launched a service six months ago in preview and have seen a lot of enthusiasm from their customers, apparently. To enable VMTD, it is as easy as checking a box in their Security Command Center premium settings, and customers consistently state it's a game-changer compared to the third-party agent deployments. As VMTV is deployed at the hypervisor rather than inside the instance, the instrumentation is not as exposed to adversaries as our traditional endpoint detections and response technology EDR agents. And the agentless serverless functions of this is uh, quite a good game changer. I wonder if that works with the uh, confidential compute product or whether the encryption of the data in memory is uh, going to be a blocker to that. Need to look into that. Yeah, you would think maybe that is a blocker. Uh, but maybe, you know, again, it's at the hypervisor level, which the hypervisor has to have the keys for that memory, you think, at some level to access it. Yeah. Maybe not. And then the uh, Google Cloud Certificate Manager is now generally available as well. The Cloud Certificate Manager enables Google users to acquire, manage, and deploy public TLS certificates at scale for use with your Google Cloud workloads. TLS certificates are required to secure browser connections and your transactions. Uh, CCM supports both self-managed and Google-managed certificates, as well as wildcard certs, and has monitoring capabilities to alert you to expiring certificates. Additional features are coming soon, including Kubernetes integration in public preview and self-service Acme cert enrollment in preview now. It might be my favorite service on Amazon. Oh, oh yeah, ACM. <laughs> so I'm yeah. super excited. Yeah. It's such, a, it's such a, it's a standard part of everything you do on AWS that is just there all the time that you sort of forget that other cloud providers don't have it. And it's such a miserable thing to do on your own. Yeah. There's no satisfaction in doing that job. Anything in X509 certificates is not a satisfying job. No. <laughs> so, definition of toil. It's the definition of toil. I mean, just had to ex- renew uh, 4,000 certificates that had a root CA expiring. <laughs> uh, the definition of toil is uh, understatement of the century. So. <laughs> a little too soon. A little too just soon. Waterboarding. Soon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, in how many ways can you abuse this X509 certificate and the whole certificate handoff process? Oh, a bajillion ways you can abuse it that you've learned through the process. Uh, well, if you're an Apogee customer and you've been an Apogee customer for a long time, you know that it's typically sold to you as a subscription. Uh, but that's not very cloudy. And so Google uh, is finally making it more cloud-like with pay-as-you-go pricing for Apogee to enable customers to unlock Apogee's API management capabilities while retaining the flexibility to manage your own costs. New pricing and model is offered as a complement to the existing subscription plans uh, or the ability to evaluate it for free. Pay-as-you-go benefits include unlocking the value of Apogee with no upfront costs, maintaining flexibility and control in your costs, and providing freedom to experiment. Billing is based on three dimensions, uh, which will rack you up if you don't pay attention. The first is the number of Apogee gateway nodes you're running per minute, the API analytics per month or API requests, whether they are successful or not. 
are processed by analytics and stored for three months. So that could be a lot of money if you get DDoSed on your Apogee gateway. Uh, maybe put WAF in front of it. And then networking uses such as IP address, networking egress, and forwarding rules are all charged on a usage basis. So do do some calculations to see if this is a good play, choice for you before you uh, break out of your subscription contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of those things are are relatively hard to control from the service side, right? So it is something that can be quite the challenge. But, you know, I like flexibility in pricing models, and so especially POCs and smaller projects where it doesn't really make sense to commit in advance, that's great, you know. And then once it gets big enough, if it warrants it, then you go to subscription. So it's nice to have the options. Yeah. All right, moving on to Azure. Microsoft is formally launching the ARM-based Azure VMs powered by the Altier, or Ampere Ultra ARM-based processors available to you in 10 regions and multiple AZs around the world, as well as supporting Kubernetes AKS uh, implementations on Azure. The new Ampere-based instances are the DPS V5, DPS LS V5, the EPS V5, and these new virtual machines have been injured to efficiently run scale-out cloud-native workloads. And since being in preview, hundreds of customers have tested and experienced firsthand the excellent price performance of the ARM architecture can provide for web and app servers. Uh, there's a quote here from Stephen Hunter, Global Azure Platform Services Lead at Avanade. The ARM-based virtual machines deliver great price performance value for many cloud-native workloads and scale-out scenarios, and the low power consumption per ARM core will enable Avanade to deliver solutions with, which meet clients' sustainable goals by further reducing their carbon footprint. Avanade is a name, a blast from the past. <laughs> awesome. I think all the ARM chips, if not most of the ARM chips are all single-threaded cores as well, which means you just kind of avoid this problem of uh, security risks of, of data bleeding between processes on shared cores. Do you think that's going to be forever? Or do you think that's eventually going to get fixed so it can do multi-threading? Wow. Or do you think they that. see it as, a, as an architectural advantage of ARM to not be multi-threaded? I think they don't need to be. Because, because they're engineered differently, they, they're already sort of natively low power. So that's why they say scale out, not, not up. And I think... I, think, I mean, it's been years. It's been, what, 15 years since since the first hyper-threading vulnerability was found, and we're still finding new ones now, even in the new AMD chips. Yeah, that's true. So, Maybe we need a more complex instruction set for the ARM chips. <laughs> <laughs> That'll solve all the problems, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> Oh, when they first when when they were first made, they used to be like sixteen instructions. It was literally, you know, add, subtract, move data, compare things. It was it was really bare bones, and it's significantly grown since then. <laughs> True. Yeah, it's like when you buy a Camry, right? You look at Camrys like thirty years ago; they were so much smaller and simpler. You can't help but getting bigger. You, yeah. The only way to stop it from getting bigger is to you can't you let it get bigger and you create something new later that is smaller or more simple. Azure Data Explorer supports native ingestion from Amazon S3. Uh, Azure now has the ability to ingest that data from S3 into Azure Data Explorer, or ADX, natively. Amazon S3, apparently, according to Azure, is one of the most popular object storage services out there. Hey, it's in the press release, Azure. You can't deny it now. (laughs) ADX is a fully managed, high-performance, big data analytics platform that makes it easy to analyze high volumes of data in near real time. ADX supports ingesting data from a wide variety of sources, such as Azure Blobs, ADLS Gen 2, Azure Event Hub, Azure IoT Hub, popular open source technology such as Kafka, Logstash, Telegraph. And now, with S3 support, customers can bring data from S3 natively without relying on complex ETL pipelines. It's an HTTP request. How, how hard could that have been to implement? 
Well, the question is, did they implement the read but not the write? Oh, I, this is only about feeding your data lake. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, 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 you're reading from S3, but you're writing to Azure. To yeah. Azure blog. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's a data explorer, right? So this is, you know, machine learning and visualization and big data jobs. And so, you know, if you have a huge data set, you know, and it's going to cost you an arm and a leg to get out of Amazon, which you know it is, um, you know, this is a way that you can at least use Azure's tools for visualization and while not having to move that data, which is, it's a nice thing to have. Yeah, I think the original snowmobiles weren't full of disks to move data. They were full of uh, just empty crates to put your dollar bills in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, with the recently killed by Google announcement of uh, IoT, Azure would like you to remind you that they have a LT IoT project that is in long-term support. <laughs> and the new version of it is coming out with the 1.4 version, which will be long-term support all the way through November 12th, 2024. Uh, and this does begin the end of line for the long-term support of 1.3. Uh, 1.4 brings you many new features, including automatic cleanup of unused Docker images, ability to pass custom JSON payloads to DPS on provisioning, ability to require all modules in a deployment to be downloaded before restarting anything, using the TCG TPM2 software stack, and more by checking the release notes. Uh, so there you go, IoT options, if you're looking for something to replace your Google IoT solution. Ooh. I bet you that module deployment order thing was a really nasty bug for someone. I yeah, can see yeah. that going wrong in a bad way. <laughs> yep. So you downloaded this part, but not that part, and then rebooted. Oops. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe they should really find long-term support for IoT, just because of the nature of the clients that use it. Nine nine weeks. Long-term support, nine weeks. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't even, honestly, I wouldn't even call 18 months long-term support. Yeah. Give me, give me five years or something. That's, that's long enough term support. That's my point. Yeah. I mean, that they're giving until 2024, right? So it's what just over two years because it's it's September. So yeah, mm-hmm. but yeah, it, it doesn't feel like uh, you know Ubuntu long-term support where you get like a good five solid years. Yeah, beware! Uh, Windows 2012 R2 support ends Q1 next year, I think. I think so. Yeah, yeah. that's gonna be fun <laughs> for somebody. For someone, not, yeah. Not for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is it for the new news this week. Uh, so, Peter, it's time for the lightning round. Okay, let's start with a new sign-in experience, which is now generally available for Amazon QuickSight. Cool. I mean, your features are so exciting that you're giving us a press release about sign-in experience. That's a pretty low bar. Oh, I read but, that completely wrong. <laughs> I, thought it, I thought it was a new sign. Inexperience is now generally available <laughs> for Amazon QuickSight. <laughs> Very good. Come on, Ryan. You had something. Huh? You got cut off twice. Yeah, but it wasn't that good. So come on, I want to hear it. It never is. No, no, Ryan. This so. It's been yeah. good four times this year already. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at the scoreboard. Yeah, you got to be in it to win it. <laughs> All right, announcing the Oracle Cloud VMware Solution Summer Release. Ah, uh, the checkbox for marketing. Let's remember this is September first. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, barely summer, but uh, more importantly, the marketing person got the checkbox done. Like they got that press release out for VMworld this week, so they could yeah. take some of the noise away from VMworld and get Oracle credit. Bravo! <laughs> Oracle Cloud planning in advance as usual. Yes. Amazon AppFlow now supports Jira Cloud as a source. All I can think of is, what are you really going to do with this, other than put that data into a data lake and then tell me that I'm not doing enough tickets? So. I boo this story altogether. <laughs> boo. Boo, boo. 
You can increment a counter. Look how many tickets I got. Yeah. Ooh. That I didn't do. Yeah. <laughs> My backlog is growing, not shrinking. Well, let's announce support for crawler history in AWS Glue. I mean, I personally don't like to know where the crawlers were last night, so the glue is not really the way I want to know about it. Yeah. I mean, this is an advantage over the, the usual experience I have, which is my crawler just never executes successfully because it airs out on some data nonsense that I didn't account for. Now I can see that to the end of time. Yay. Nice. Okay, you can now prevent a lifecycle management policy from archiving recently rehydrated blobs on Azure. I mean, if you've ever enabled S3 uh, tiered storage with a too low policy, uh, and you you know like you restored it from Glacier, then the next day you came back and it was back in archive, and you were like, "What? This is this is the feature for you." I I appreciate this one because I've I've been there, I've done that <laughs> a couple times. Sounds expensive. Yeah, yeah, wasn't cheap. <laughs> Learned my lesson. Announcing, ooh, it looks like, wait a minute, it looks to me like, although OCI didn't make the uh, the main show, they made the lightning round. They did, they did. Announcing dynamic performance scaling with auto-tuning for OCI block storage. I mean, someone needs to get those revenue numbers up next quarter, so yeah, we'll just auto-tune you right to premium. Perfect. Yes. I just hope they get T-Pain to do the press release announcement for this. <laughs> Nice. All right. Excellent lightning round. Thank you for your participation. I'm going to give it to the, uh, the inexperience. Thank you very much. Right. Well done. Well yeah. done. Well done. Yeah. Well done. Jonathan, you get that this one. This is one contribution. So, yeah. It's... That was pretty good. I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> well, now that it is uh, September, or sorry, September, September is right around the corner with. The CSA conference coming up September 26th through the 30th in Bellevue, Washington. Uh, Jonathan, close your ears. Elasticon is coming October 4th uh, in San Francisco. In fact, so you can pick. You can actually pick it outside the outside Elasticon <laughs> if you'd like. We'll buy you some picket signs. A sandwich uh, board to Bell. Come on, a sandwich yeah, board to exactly. Bell. We, yeah. <laughs> the end is nigh. Elastic search. Yeah. Google Cloud Next, October 11th through the 13th, and Oracle Cloud World in Las Vegas for the first time ever, October 17th through the 20th. Uh, coming right up in the corner. And we did mention reInvent at the top of the show. November 28th through December 2nd, it is coming. Be prepared. Winter is coming. All the news stories are starting to drop. We're starting to see all the prep work leading up to what's going to happen at reInvent, which will be an interesting reInvent, I think, overall. So excited to see where that ends up this year. And that is another fantastic week in the cloud. Awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna make it Elasticsearch. Your cluster is red t-shirt, I think. <laughs> and that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net for sign up instructions. All right, Jonathan, you want to talk about racist software. So give us a, give us a background on what this is about. Uh, Silicon Valley startup who have used uh, machine learning to modify the accents of call center employees to a more local accent. So if you call from the US and the data center is in India, happens occasionally, uh, it will mask the accents, the native accents of the people you're speaking to and translate them 
into um, a more uh, neutral or more American accent or you know potentially could make it sound like like anybody and, is, that a, uh, is that a code for making them more white I you know quite possibly uh, there has I been mean, some backlash for that very reason hmm. so what do you think do you think it's does it deserve the uh, the racist software tag or or no uh, I mean I, it definitely I, I don't like it from the fact of like personalizing your you know your reality or whatever like you know like yeah i'm talking to a person in india i don't want them to sound like a person in america because <laughs> i i know I'm, I'm having that conversation and you you know you think about it differently and how you talk about those things so i don't know it, it feels like it it takes away individuality and those jobs are already pretty pretty dull and boring uh and so uh you would think that they potentially don't want to completely dehumanize the experience in my opinion mm. I mean, the devil's advocate argument is that it's, you know, it's about clearing up communication breakdowns because of, you know, people who can't maybe understand a thick accent. But I, I can't see how if I was in a position where I would need something like this or, or have the problem to solve that I would that I would put this in place. It does feel somehow wrong or, you know, like I robot in a way where it's like we're now talking on behalf of people and it seems very ingenuine. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't say whether it does a translation back the other way as well to make make the caller's accent more understandable to the person in the date center. Right. I would love that. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be neat? That's what I, I mean, want, actually. Yeah. Release that feature first. Yeah, make yeah. us sound less white. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we have a marketing idea here. <laughs> I think the term, personally, I think the term racist software is so loaded and so ridiculous. Obviously, the software didn't grow up in an environment where it oppressed or wanted to oppress other people. I, I think that racist software is the wrong term. Um, whether or not it's something that is adding value or making a mockery of our inability to work with people um, from other parts of the world, uh, that I think that's sort of the argument. And I would love it if, I would hate it if Someone was forced to use the software and felt like uh, it was dehumanizing them. I would love it if the software were used to make it easier for other people to understand me because I do really, really, really value efficiency and communication. And it would be great. It'd be great if there was just a global language that we all learned and that all that all this was over with. Um, but since that's obviously super difficult to implement, um, I'd love it if other people could understand what I'm trying to communicate. Easily and quickly. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's interesting watching the article or reading the article. Marty uh, Sareem, who's the CEO, you know, he's he, he denies the racism thing pretty hard. <laughs> but uh, you know, the quote in here that I thought stood out to me was, uh, "Certain articles say we're trying to make people sound white." He said, "Well, I'm not white. My founders aren't white. Eighty percent of our company is not white. We're not building a white program. The software, this ability, can do this in many countries and many cultures." And he said, ultimately, the goal is to help call center workers keep their jobs and help companies do more business faster. So I don't, I don't you know. I, I, it's a weird, uh, you know, it's definitely a weird idea. <laughs> I get the reasoning for it. It's a, but yeah, it just it feels dirty. It feels not right. And I think the problem is we, what we, what we would hope is that this software isn't necessary, right? That's what we want mm-hmm. the people to not be racist. We want the people to not prejudge the person who picks up the phone to help them based on their accent. Uh, and, but I don't think we should blame the software or the thought of using the software to fix that problem. Well, go ahead. The Ron. dream of like the, 
it's funny how the difference I have in reactions, like my own reaction between like, you know, the idea of a instant translation service, you know, Babelfish, not the database technology, but the, um, or, you know, the earworm that automatically does that. I like, there's no hesitation that that's an awesome thing and that you can do it because it doesn't really feel like you're replacing that speech. Right. You know, or, or, you know, that you're, you're doing a translation. It's, it's very, very obviously it's not the, not the original thing. It's, it's the translated version. It's something about the modification of this and removing the accent just, it, it feels wrong and it, maybe it shouldn't, maybe, maybe it's the same sort of mechanism as, as translation. I think that I've experienced that something similar to this software because, and it hurt the conversation didn't help it by the way. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, I, you sometimes hear uh, people who haven't worked with Indian employees as much, right? And they say it's hard to understand them. And as you get to know them and you talk to them more and more, it gets easier and easier. Uh, I mean, for some people, and I'm thinking older people in mm-hmm. general who haven't been exposed much to that culture, uh, you know, maybe it's beneficial to them in that scenario where it's like, hey, I, I just really can't understand you. Um, cause I'm not used to your accent. Is there a way we can make that better? You know, but if it was an optional thing where I requested it, maybe I'd feel different about it too. Again, I don't, I don't know. It's such a weird, yeah. how about a weird area? How about if we take the race or the racism part out of it and just say, you got someone with a really thick English, British accent, like a Cockney accent. Is that what it's called? Jonathan? There are many accents. Where you, where you, you, I, the one that, one that came to me when you started going down this path was the Irish accent because that one gets me. Or Irish, yeah, yeah Irish yeah. gets some, right? Yeah. And and uh, yeah, what, what if we just just it's all yeah. white people talking to each other? Then is it okay? Yeah, I think, it, but for me, weird. I think it goes to motivations a little bit. I mean, if the if the company's using the software to try and hide the fact that they have outsourced their labor to somewhere else in the world. Then that's that's not the right motivation. No, I mean, how would you how would you feel if it wasn't software that ran in, in the call center, but it was something you could download and put on your phone, so that you you uh, you know as a caller you could make the choice to translate somebody's voice to make it more understandable, perhaps as people get older. Would that be would, would that still be considered racist? I don't know. I mean, I mean that's I, again I, at that point, is it a hearing aid more than anything? Right? It's like, well, I know that I have a problem understanding these accents. And so I'm now using a tool to help me decipher the accents so I can be more effective in what I want to do. And on that point, it's a personal choice versus something being forced on those people. And that does feel different to me. Like when you think of it from that perspective, um, you know, just like, you know, if you're, if you're deaf or going deaf and you have a hearing aid, I don't, that, that isn't insulting. It's just, you're, you know, you have hearing loss. So it's not a big deal. And if this is something that can help you communicate better, or, or maybe you have a learning development that helps and makes it harder to hear, Certain accents. I mean, I, I don't hear Jonathan half the time. That British thing. Uh, you know, maybe it's maybe it's helpful. I don't know. Yeah, I wonder. It does feel, it, it feels better on that side to me for some reason because maybe then it's it's I'm making a choice for me because I have a I have a need for it versus it being forced on me by a company who doesn't want me to know that they outsource all their labor to India or some other low cost area. On the on the other perspective, let's say companies did have that motivation. Maybe that's not the right motivation. But what if what that literally does is vastly increase the job opportunities in India? That's not a bad thing for India, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of opportunities in India right now. <laughs> like, I'm just saying, lots of startups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in some no, areas, maybe no. it, 
you know, maybe it does help with the job market in other countries. But, you know, there's also... Maybe there's lots of opportunities now at 900 bucks a month and there could be lots of opportunities at three grand a month, you know? Yeah, possibility. Interesting. I, I'll mm-hmm. have to think about it more because I this has never really come up for me before as an item I'd have thought about. But yeah, uh, yeah it definitely opens some questions. You got anything else, Ryan? Looks like you got words on the tip of your tongue. Uh, I was just thinking it's probably not the, the last quagmire that tech is going to open up like this, right? Like the, you know, thinking about, you know, just consciousness and AI and or, or something like that. I think we're going to be navigating some very difficult waters, you know, morality-wise for a while. Yeah, you know, I think my kind of slightly humorous concern about, about the technology is it's, it's often not the accent which people make a mockery of. It's, it's um, manners of speech, it's dialect, it's choice of words. And the software doesn't, doesn't erase words, it just makes them sound different. And so it, in a way, I'm, you know, my concern really is that somebody in a, in a call center in India or somewhere else using uh, sort of local speech patterns now sound American or now sound English. And in, in a way, it, it almost sort of makes it, makes it um, more of a mockery of, of that person and that culture than if they were speaking in their native accent. Yeah. I wonder if it passes the Turing test in that sense where if you're listening to it, you're like, this feels off and you don't know why. Cause, and it would be those, you know, phrases, those mannerisms, you know, ways of speaking that's, you know, that are, uh, you know, very localized mm-hmm. and then you remove the accent, you sort of remove that context. So it, it'll feel out of context. Yeah. I still like the concept of talent of claiming that English people have an accent when they invented the language. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite things to do. That is pretty awesome. That is pretty great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, guys, we'll talk next week. See you later. All right. Bye-bye.